On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are talking about finances, house finances, because there's new survey numbers out that show a huge number of Ontarians say who are homeowners say they are house poor. The cost of buying their home has made it basically impossible to do anything else. Every dollar is just going into their mortgage. This doesn't sound healthy or quite frankly safe. We're going to talk about that one. And, and we are going to talk about Bob Ross. You know, Bob Ross, the artist, the Bob Ross, there's a documentary coming out on Netflix. We're going to talk to someone who wrote the book literally about Bob Ross. Stick around. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Saw some information today that uh, that I thought was fascinating, although entirely predictable. I mean, th- there is no way that I would have expected anything but this information. And it's according to surveying done by Ipsos. It says a third of homeowners in Ontario, one third basically, maybe a percentage below that, but basically a third of homeowners in Ontario say they are house poor, meaning the bulk of their money, almost everything they bring in is tied up in their mortgage and home-related bills. And half of those people say they're concerned they won't be able to make ends meet in this next year. That's, that's, that is concerning. That is... That is concerning stuff when a third of people say almost everything they bring in is tied up in their mortgages. It doesn't leave a lot of flexibility for other stuff and other problems and other things to do. I want to bring in Don Fox. You hear Don every Saturday morning here on 900 CHML, 8 till 9 in the morning, planning your financial future. Don, how are you today? I'm doing great, Scott. Yourself? Well, I'm doing, I think, better than a lot of these people who um, have every dime tied up in their homes. Thankfully, I feel very fortunate that that's the case. But when homes are selling for seven hundred, eight hundred, nine hundred, a thousand, a million dollars more, it can't be surprising that when people buy these, they're then tapped out. Like you said earlier, totally predictable. And I love the theme song. You started money for nothing. Um, that is part of the problem. When interest rates got as low as they got, all of a sudden it allowed them to carry a bigger debt. And, and it also allowed them, you know, with some help, um, quite frankly, um, 60% of the millennials were being helped by parents to get their down payment. And that also, you know, created an extra demand, uh, amongst other things, um, the pandemic and, and just allows uh, the extra demand, which pushed housing prices up. And then, you know, they got to get in quick. It became an emotional buy without, a, you know, being well thought through at times. Right, because there can't possibly be this many millionaires in the world who can afford this easily. You know, as you as you noted earlier, you know, when the prices are being bid up and you see a million-dollar home go for a million one fifty, it's like, okay, that's $150,000 more debt. Um, that's not chump change. And, you know, if you're making... You know, a few hundred dollars left over each month. It takes a long time to pay down one hundred and fifty thousand dollars, and that's just the overbid. That's not the original million, right? Yeah, but it uh, sounds, but Don, amazing. it sounds like chump change when you're paying a million. Another hundred thousand doesn't sound that bad. Um, yeah, and I would suggest there's a lot of um, you know people kind of going down that path, whether they're being guided that way or whether it's like I said, I just have to get this house. They they've missed a few bids. Um, they've missed 10 or 15 bids and they didn't get the house. So they say, okay, I'm in, I'm going to bid this one up a bit more. 
I can tell you when my wife and I, we built our house uh, 20 something years ago. And when we did that, we're in the office of the, the builder and we had the price that we wanted, but then they say, but you know what, for 5,000 more, you can add this and you're going, oh, that sounds pretty good. Let's do that. And they go for 10,000 more <laughs> then you can do this. And 20 minutes into this, you're looking, going, wait a second, we've just doubled the price of our home. Let's go back to square one here where we started because it's so easy. And, and I would think I would think different scenario, but I would think the same thing happens in these bidding wars. I would think that it would be so easy to say, well, an extra 20,000 and then it's got to go up by 40 and then 60. It, it's kind of that you're, you're in a bathtub and they slowly keep adding the hot water and before long you realize you don't realize you're boiling. It, it is an emotional decision. It gets to that. Um, I bought my house 32 years ago. We did a major renovation. And the one thing I was told by the builder, it says, don't get caught up in all those extras. Because they can add up, as you just pointed out, they can add up severely. And, you know, the baseboards, you want a four-inch four baseboard or a six or an eight-inch. Well, it's not just that baseboard. It might be that plus the plugs plus this. And they can, you've got to set a budget. And it's so easy. And like I said, uh, you know, you can see it. You say, well, what's another $10,000 or whatever it is? The next thing you know, that 10000 becomes twenty and so forth. And, and it's an emotional decision. And this is where having a third party to kind of go over the whole scenario before you get, you know, you have to have a drop dead price and says, you cannot go over this price no matter what, unless you're going to get a second job or you're going to rent out part of it. But Don, what do you do then? And, and like, I have an, I have immense sympathy for people who are trying to get into the market. What do you do? You want to have a house and every house you go to look at, and it's a, a certain price and you've got that drop dead price and every house you go to, you get to that price and then someone outbids you. At some point, you either have to say, we're not going to own the house or we're going to have to go higher. What, what do you do? Yeah, I, the, the higher part, if you've really gone through the nuts and bolts of your financial budget, if you're going to say, okay, I will not be able to take a vacation. Um, you start chopping off the things that you will not be able to do in the future. I will not go to Tim Hortons. I will not go to Starbucks. I will start, I will cut things out of my um, life that are fun and they're nice things, but they're not have tos. And so this is why, you know, you come to this, uh, this survey saying how people become house poor and, you know, possibly at least they're in the market. I guess that's a, the plus. And the other side is, you know, down the road, you know, five years later, they could get raises, um, better jobs, etc., And then it becomes easier. But certainly in the short term, there's short-term pain. And yeah, if you're renting, life is a little less of a struggle when you're renting, although you're not gaining anything. You can have more fun. I got to say, one thing about owning a house, you're forced to make the payment. So that's why, you know, financially, a lot of people are very good owning a house because, you know, the bank will take the house away from you. And therefore, you end up with this piece of property down the road that's paid for. Yeah. The, The problem, though, is with all of what we just said, with a lot of these people, 30% of people who are now house poor and who pretty much everything that they've got coming in is going out, it, it, they're like one or two bad breaks away from disaster. Oh, yes, absolutely. And, and I looked at this, um, you know, on my show um, back in June, I remember we, talk, I, we talked about how, you know, 60% of the millennials buying house were being helped by parents with the down payment. And I'm thinking, okay, the parents got them into this possibly the parents will maybe be getting them out of the perhaps an issue down the road, where there might be one of those bad breaks or interest rates simply going up because they are at all time lows. You're listening to the Scott Radley show podcast on 900 CHML. You touched on something and I know, look, it's been talked about 
ad nauseum, but I think that because interest rates have not gone up, all the talk that people make and all the cautions and everything, people I think have, it's like the boy who cried wolf. We've grown almost <laughs> to say, oh, come on. You know what? Yeah, I, I, I've heard about the interest rates going up now for years. It hasn't happened. It's not going to happen. But history tells us it's got to happen at some time, doesn't it? Well, yes. You know, you, you go back before the pandemic and interest rates were, at a, you know, still a low rate, but then they dropped from, you know, the prime rate right now is 2.45%, and it was about 3.5% just before. So it's dropped about a full percent. It doesn't sound like a lot, but when, when you look at your mortgage, and it, it, that's a, if it went back to 3.5%, that's a 50% increase practically in your, in your interest rate. And so you're, all of a sudden your interest costs could add hundreds of dollars per month to your, your monthly bill, and can you afford that? And I know the government has put in tests to say, okay, you have to be able to afford a, a mortgage, and they raised it this year. I think it's about 4.5%. But this is where, yes, that was a test to get through it, but then they're getting help with the down payment so that they can afford that. But then if interest rates do come through, their monthly payment still goes up, and can they actually afford it? So, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a dilemma. It really is. And I understand it's a, a house is an emotional item, as we talked about, and it's really quite interesting. I was reading through this survey, and it, you know, it's kind of interesting. Um, there's a, quite a disconnect. There's 30 36% they're, they're worried about interest rates rising and could actually drive them towards bankruptcy. And yet 34% say they spend, plan on spending more than normal on things like travel and entertainment once the province opens up. <laughs> it's like that, I, I was going to, yeah. I was going to ask you about that because that, that, that sur- this survey does say that these people, the people that we're talking about in this poll are house poor. They have no money, but they are going to spend. I mean, look, I, we tried, my wife and I tried to teach our kids, you can't have everything. You have to choose what you're going to have, but I don't know whether we've done a good job or not. We'll find out, I guess, soon enough. But it seems as though that message is really hard to pass along that if you want the house, you may not be able to eat out and go on trips or whatever. And if you want to rent, you can maybe do those things, but it can't be both. Uh, absolutely. And you know what? Um, sometimes the best parent are the lenders because they don't have the patience for excuses. And, you know, as parents, I'm a parent of two and, and uh, you know, we've been kids of a financial planner that you've heard it all the way along. So uh, they are pretty uh, through osmosis and <laughs> they probably learned a lot of things, but, and they're quite good with their money. But uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's interesting, and the banks don't have those excuses. So you know, even if they had this kind of entitled life, the banks don't really have, care about those reasons. And uh, if the credit cards rack up and so forth, they want their payment. And, does this uh, argue, though, Don, does this argue for what um, Teresa Cassioli, who's been on the show a bunch of times, an advocate, strong advocate for teaching finances, finances and financial literacy in schools, does this argue for that, that, that apparently a, a generation or more have not learned that you can't have everything. You have to pick and choose and be financially literate. I couldn't agree with that person more. I love the idea of having this as, as part of the curriculum. I know personally I've gone into high schools and done classes, and you can see there's a, a bunch of people nodding their heads, and then others are kind of blank. Um, unfortunately, I have a feeling the ones that are really into it are also the ones good with money. And it's the ones that turn it off, say, well, whatever. And it's a uh, but if you had to take a course and actually you'd had to write the exam, at least they can't have the excuse, I didn't know. And so I'm a big fan of uh, having that as part of the high school curriculum. 
What about the banks? And look, banks are impersonal, I understand by definition, but should the banks be more stringent on how much they're willing to loan? I know they want people to take out massive loans so they have to pay interest forever. I mean, that's how (laughs) banks make their money, but should they be more stringent with who they give money to and how much they give money to? Uh, They're a faceless entity. They don't take the blame. The person, they they hit their numbers. And absolutely, I totally agree with that. Their job is to lend as much as they can. They go through those, those ratios and they can lend right to that ratio, but there's no guidance because I've known a, I know personally a client of mine that went bankrupt. They bought they they were offered they said they could have a million dollars of debt, and I said you know you're only making one hundred and fifty thousand dollars. I said that means you can't you can you won't even be able to buy a car when your car breaks down. You would you know basically I laid it out what that really means, and then he fortunately they uh, turned it down, but they would have uh, they 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 really don't have a limit. They'll go right to the mm, edge yeah. of their their limit of how much they'll, they'll lend to those people. Just before we go with 30% of people saying they are now house poor and, and that's before an interest rate or any disaster financially to them happens. Is it crazy to say that we could potentially see a situation here happen? Like we saw in the States a decade and a half ago. It's not crazy. I, I would hope people are a little more resilient um, and maybe get a little creative um, renting a part of their house is an option. They've been certainly doing that a lot in Vancouver. Um, taking a part-time job, there's help wanted signs everywhere right now, particularly in the food service business. So if that's what it takes, um, you know, that rather than losing a house is definitely an option. And so they do have choices, but they might have to be more uh, be a bit more creative about it. It's uh, it's concerning. It's fascinating. It's uh, it's concerning. I'll, I'll go back to no, concerning. If, if this this many people are just on the precipice, and one bad thing could uh, put them over the edge. Don Fox, you can hear him as I say Saturday mornings here on CHML eight till nine. Tune in for that. Don, thanks as always for this. Appreciate it. My pleasure. It's great chatting with you. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on nine hundred CHML. Netflix next week has a documentary that's going to be arriving. They say about the life of Bob Ross. And you know who Bob Ross is, right? Of course you do. He's the the painter that was on PBS with the Afro and the happy little mountains and the, you know, sing-song voice all around. I mean, he was he was the epitome of happiness while painting, I think is is pretty much what it is. But now he's also a cult hero. Everybody knows Bob Ross. Long after he's deceased, he's more popular and famous than ever. Well, what this documentary is about isn't entirely clear. The trailer that you can watch online is intentionally vague. It says they're not going to tell you what it's about. So we are left to wonder, but it's called Happy Accidents, Betrayal and Greed, which, you know, a little daunting. Uh, who betrayed who? I don't know. Who was greedy? Don't know. guess we're going to find out. But the bigger question than any of that is how did Bob Ross, of all people, Bob Ross become this cultural phenomenon that now, as I say, is is bigger than he ever was. Uh, Kristen Congdon is a professor of art and media at the University of Central Florida. She's also the author of a book called Happy Clouds, Happy Trees, the Bob Ross Phenomenon. She joins us now. Professor Congdon, thanks for doing this today. Appreciate it. Happy to be with you. I cannot think that too many people would look at Bob Ross if they didn't already know the background, would look at him at first glance and say, yeah, that guy is going to be a star. That guy is going to be a cult hero. How did this happen? Oh, wow. That's a good question. Um, I think people started loving him because he was in some ways anti 
Art World with a capital A and a capital W. So he came out of this time um, when people were having crafts and leisure time and people wanted to try new things, and he gave you permission to do that. He was interested in all kinds of people uh, realizing their own potential, and he saw art as being one way of lifting people up. That's very different from what the art world and modernism was teaching us. They were teaching us that there are only certain people who could be artists, and they were geniuses, and they had lots of money, and they were a certain kind of person, usually white and male. Um, but what Bob did was encourage everyone to make a painting. You know, I hadn't thought of that, that part of it, but you're absolutely right, because if you are not someone who knows your way around an art gallery, let's say, or you don't have the lingo that the art world has, it can be a very daunting place. And if you don't, if you can't speak in that language, it's very easy to feel like an idiot among certain groups of people. Right, right. And in some ways, what happened is that the theory, art theory, caught up with Bob Ross. Because, you know, Bob's paintings, you can, you can look at them and wonder whether they're really good paintings or not. But that's not the point anymore. The point is he communicated with all kinds of people. He was a performer. He was somebody who taught you about life. And as the ideas about what art should be and can do and how it should function began to expand, he was right there for everyone to sort of lift up. Let me go back to something you just said. Are his paintings good? Would, would people in the art world say that his paintings are good? Maybe there's two different things here. Would people in the art world say they're good, and are they good? Because those might be two different things. Um, personally, I don't think they're very good. But I <laughs> okay. do think that Bob Ross is a great artist. And the reason I say that is because he's a terrific performer. Um, and what he does is beyond the actual painting. It's kind of what we talk about, that, that the message of the art expands beyond the frame. So what Bob was teaching everybody was really how to live your life, how to think about yourself, how to think about nature, how to think about other people. And he did that so very well. And if you can do that as an artist, then you are really a great artist. And it's funny because the, by 2021 standards, almost everything about Bob Ross would scream uncool. I mean, yeah. the, the crazy perm afro and the, right. the sing-song voice and the little sayings and the fact that he's painting these landscapes. It, 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 it's not exactly the hippest thing in the world that he was doing. No, he was the most unhip person, but now he's hip. And I think, yeah. you know, when you think about people who became cool, who were the geeks and the, the freaks and the outsiders, <laughs> Everything has switched. The world has turned upside down, and Bob was all part of that. He also did a lot of things for those people who felt dejected, um, because, you know, Danny Coyman, who also wrote the book with, with me, um, he was a, a young boy in Florida watching Bob Ross and recognizing that he was gay, and Bob Ross gave him permission to be different. And when Bob... when Danny got to uh, art school, he found that there were all these people in his art classes that were using Bob Ross materials. Their, their palette knife, the paintbrushes, some of his paints even. And so he turned a lot of those kids who felt like they 
couldn't make it in society um, on to feeling confident enough that they could. I'm trying to, uh, this is, maybe I wasn't watching when Bob Ross was first getting going, but was his show a massive success on PBS the first it, time, it, or is it, or is it something that's picked up steam later on? It, 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 it has picked up steam. It's not that he was, you know, unsuccessful, but he, it certainly, you know, hit a chord with a lot of people, and I think everybody was sort of surprised that this was being taped in Muncie, Indiana. But he was an ordinary guy that just kind of taught you peace and love and all those wonderful things that came out of, you know, a certain generation of people that they needed to feel that. Um, and, and the welcoming, anybody can do that. And for somebody like me who, ha- you know, you, once you've been through those art critiques in art school, they're brutal. If you've <laughs> never experienced one, they're really, really brutal. But what he did was give you permission to paint and love what you were doing, even if you made mistakes, even if the painting wasn't good. He was teaching you how to feel confident enough in yourself to move to the next step. There are no mistakes. There are only happy accidents. They are only happy accidents. That's right. <laughs> but when I said, was it was he a huge success at the time? Like, uh, Bob Ross has passed now. And today, if he was alive and walking down the street with that afro, he would be stopped by everybody. He, he, I mean, everybody knows who Bob Ross is. Back then, would he have been a celebrity or would he have just been a guy? No, he was just, well, in the art world, of course, they dissed him terribly. And he would always say, my paintings will never be in the Smithsonian. And of course, now they are. Mm. But it's, he recognized he was, and he was okay with it, that he, that he was not the painter that was going to be in the great museums. And there's something really wonderful about that as, as we critique the art world and who it accepts and who it doesn't accept. So it was breaking those kinds of boundaries that kind of gave everyone a lot of pleasure. You said that his paintings, now there is something, there are a few of them in the Smithsonian, I understand, but I read something recently couple of years ago, maybe. And I, I was stunned by this. And it was that very few of his paintings are privately owned, have been sold. None from the TV show. They're all in storage in crates in a warehouse at Bob Ross Enterprises or whatever it's called. That's correct. So Why? One of the things you need to do, and this is what might be coming out from that network show. I'm, and I can't, I can only guess. But Bob Ross Incorporated is extremely different from Bob Ross, the artist. Bob Ross, um, when we started writing the book, I got a cease and desist letter. People who try to create fan clubs for Bob Ross get cease and desist letters. Come on. No, I promise you. Wow. He, the, the company is extremely controlling. And, um, you know, you, they wouldn't give you uh, an interview. Um, my guess is, you know, we couldn't get an interview from anyone except Bob Ross's second wife's sister. <laughs> and basically what she, which was probably the only person who didn't sign an NDA, um, because the silence around all of those people is pretty extreme. Do we know why? Um, you know, it, it, I think like have they been they burned by somebody before? His, they wanted to control who his persona. Um, there's sort of this mythical idea about who he is. You know, he's 
His father was a carpenter, and he made elaborate crates for um, di- disabled animals. Um, you know, this, this whole um, sort of legacy of who he is was ex- very much controlled. So they didn't want anyone else writing a biography on him. They didn't want anybody else doing films on him. Um, Steve Ross, who I understand lives not far from where I live in Florida, um, could not get an interview with him. And it's very strange, you know, that a public person like Bob Ross, you couldn't get, you know, anybody except for the second wife's sister (laughs) to have a conversation with you. But they haven't put out an official autobiography. Like, if you're going to say, oh, we want to control the message, I might have expected then they would have put stuff out themselves. But I don't think that exists, does it? There was uh, a film that PBS had um, several years ago, maybe 10 years ago, um, which had a little teeny bit more information. But I'm sure even that was extremely controlled. Huh. And, and I mean, these paintings, and there's thousands of them apparently, because he, right. uh, I, I was reading that for every show, he did one before the show, one after the show, and then one during the show. So there's three versions of right. every painting and they're all in sorts. They'd be, I don't know if they'd be worth a fortune now, but they'd be worth serious uh, dough. I think they'd be worth a whole lot of money um, for, for a, a lot of different reasons. Um You know, even in our book, we couldn't reproduce a Bob Ross painting because the organization owns all the copyrights. So even if we knew somebody who owned, which we did, several people who owned the Bob Ross paintings, the organization still owns the copyright. And in the legal letter that we got saying cease and desist, um, they were very clear about that. So our our paintings are by Danny Coyman, who is an artist, and he copied Bob Ross's paintings. That was hmm. the best we could do. At this point, so, okay, so the, the, they're being very protective of this, and, and I'm, I'm not sure I completely understand why, because at this point, I'm not sure that you could harm the image or the legacy, unless you came out with something that, you know, something horrendous that he had in his background that I've never heard. Any, as far as just normal talk of his life, I don't know that you could damage his legacy. I don't think you could. And I don't really think there's that much to find. I mean, I, he, there are certain things like, you know, he had headaches or um, he had a heart problem. Uh, his you know, first wife he divorced from. There's a rumor out there that there might have been a, chi- a child named Bob that we don't know very much about. So there, there may be everyday kinds of things that, you know, involve Bob's personal life. And we do know that he was very private. But I very much doubt that there's going to be anything that would tarnish his legacy. Those things are hardly scandalous. Yeah, those are hardly scandalous things by today's standards. Absolutely not. One of the other things I find so funny about this is, and I go back to the paintings, I think that they, if they were to put those on sale, first of all, they would sell out in minutes because, you know, it's pop culture. People would love to have a Bob Ross original on their wall. I would But it's so... Well, sure. Who wouldn't? I mean, what a conversation yeah. starter when people come over and they go, "That's is that yeah. really a Bob Ross?" Yeah. Um, but it's so funny that like his paintings were all done in thirty minutes or less. This is not painting the Sistine Chapel. I mean, he was pounding. So I read somewhere right. else that he may have produced more paintings than any other professional painter ever. 
Yeah, it's kind of amazing to think about that. But you met, you know, he he um, taped thirteen shows in three days. Huh. So just think about the amount of painting in in three days that were done, even. And then he traveled, you know, um, doing paintings in front of all kinds of people. He was constantly painting. If you can do one in thirty minutes, or maybe a little over, if he's doing a little more detailed one for his book. That's a whole lot of paintings. That is, that is, and now, now, uh, you know, and again, going back to the company, th- this is this is huge. Bob Ross is huge business now. Yes, it is, um, and the the corporation owns every likeness of him, all the T-shirts, everything. So, if I'm, you are a student of Bob Ross, you know, you just uh, are painting uh, Bob Ross like paintings from the television show or from the internet, and you put them on the web, and you say these are Bob Ross-inspired paintings, you will get a cease and desist letter. I just, I find it so funny that they're this controlling of the image, and yet they would go for a Bob Ross Chia pet. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> could, exactly. It seems, yeah. it seems sort right. of antithetical. Yeah, it does seem, well, especially in, in the way we think about teaching and art now, you know, if you're teaching somebody to create a painting, that painting, um, you know, you want, you want to honor your students. You want them to be connected to the teacher. I mean, you can't even, on the internet, thank Bob Ross for all of the help that he gave you in becoming an artist. It's just um, not, it's not who Bob Ross is, so I sense that there may be this kind of tension that is coming out. Uh, before I let you go, am I correct that there are, and I, I assume then these would have to be officially sanctioned things, but that there are stadium or arena events where you go and have Bob Ross paint sessions where people will go and do that? I, I saw a picture somewhere and I thought that I, that must be fake, but then someone said, no, it's real. They have oh, these things. Right. He had these, but I don't know if he did them in stadiums, but he did them in large parks and large public spaces where people would actually, um, you know, follow him on do a painting, but a lot more would just stand there to watch. Because, you know, you really don't have to do the painting to love and learn from Bob Ross. I have a family member who has anxiety who just listens to his tapes to calm herself down. Well, I am uh, I am absolutely going to be uh, getting this book. I have not read your book yet, I because I only stumbled upon it today. But I will be going out and getting it before the <laughs> documentary comes up. It's called Happy Clouds, Happy Trees: The Bob Ross Phenomenon. I know it's available if nowhere else around here. I know it's available on Amazon because I'm staring at the website right now where you can find it there. Um, I, I listen. I, I appreciate it. a fun conversation. I can't wait to see what the greed and deception or whatever else is that they're going to try <laughs> and dig either. up here. Unless I've totally missed things. I think it's going to be about the organization. Professor Kristen Congdon, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. Thank you. Bye-bye. Once again, the book is called Happy Clouds, Happy Trees, The Bob Ross Phenomenon. And it is a phenomenon. There is no question. And next week, as I say, on Netflix, the documentary is coming out. It is called Happy Accidents, Betrayal, and Greed. So dark considering it's Bob Ross. It should be Well, we'll see. We'll see if it holds up to the title, but either way, I have a feeling an awful lot of people are going to be watching because who doesn't love Bob Ross? You know, the saddest part about this, 
is that he, I think he died in 94, 95, 96, something in there that he's long gone and never got to see how enormous he became, which probably would have shocked him as much as it shocks everyone else that a guy that that guy became what he is. It, it's, it's a pretty fun story. The Scott Radley show. Weekday evenings from six to eight on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley show podcast is available on Apple podcast, Google podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode and also be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.